All right, well, let me get into my handout, kind of. Um, we'll get as far as we can. But this is a reference. I mean, you can read some of these things and just begin. I mean, I have something like 30 books in my library on this, um, and I've not read them all at all. I summarized some of them, read some of them completely. There's a lot to learn about all this. Um, but just for you, just in apologetics, just the basic things I've told you here are, are the vital things. Uh, this is what the scripture asserts happened. Okay, it happened this way. God made it. All right? And then Hebrews 11.3 says, we only believe that by faith. We only accept it by faith. All right? But then I've added to you, yes, but we are seeking and we do operate in a naturalistic world. And we do want to learn science. We do want to try to find things out. God, you know, like I said, Jesus got in the boat just like everybody else. Um, and he did many things just like everybody else, even though he didn't need to. Because he operates comfortably in the physical world as much as in the supernatural world. Let's look at some of the things between... Um, Scripture and science. Um, so this is a list of possibilities when it comes to, um, you know, uh, origins. Perhaps um, this is Francis Schaeffer's list. Uh, this is what he thinks is exhausting logical possibilities of relevant themes. Bottom on page one, there is a possibility that God created a grown-up universe. Actually, this is, for me personally, very likely. In other words, a universe that appears to be old but isn't. I do not find um, deception. Like some people say that God's trying to trick us. No, it's not that any more than Jesus was trying to trick anybody with the, the creation of mature wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. No, that, he wasn't trying to deceive people. He was trying to give people high-quality wine. And the ordinary way that high-quality wine comes about is years and years of fermentation. Jesus just got it done, if you know what I'm saying. He has that kind of power. So it appeared very old, but wasn't. Is he trying to deceive? There's no deception. He's trying to bless them at the wedding at Cana in Galilee. God wasn't trying to deceive by having Adam formed, fully formed as an adult, not as an infant. <laughs> Who's going to take care of him? I mean, a God could do that. You know, it's like nursing and caring and all that before there's even a mother. But he just chose to have a fully formed man and then a fully formed woman. It's just what he chose to do. This gives indications to me of a fully formed universe. So also the feeding of the 5,000, okay? Uh, barley loaves uh, require a process to bake. I've seen my wife not barley. I don't think she ever made, no, she probably made barley bread. But there's, I, there's a process, right? There's, there's a process of making and baking bread. And unless you live in Japan, we generally cook fish, all right? You know, with the fish, maybe they showed up just ready to eat. Or maybe they're already baked. I wouldn't have a problem, though, if they'd already been cooked and ready to eat. They certainly were ready to eat. Again, Jesus isn't trying to deceive. He's trying to feed people. He forms Malchus's ear, fully formed like an adult ear. I hope it matched the other one in pigmentation and general shape. I would think it, he just out of kindness to Malchus, he gave him a fully formed ear that looked like the other one, or the one that Peter had hacked off and was laying on the ground. Um, again, is he trying to deceive? No, he's trying to give Malchus an ear. And so all I'm saying is, I think that that, and it's absolutely unprovable. In that case, the universe could have been formed with me in mid-sentence here, and it was formed a split second ago, and none of us would be the wiser. Now, that's not God's way, but all I'm saying is an unprovable assertion. But it is something I think about frequently uh, when it comes to all of the dating techniques and all of those other things. Um, so keep it in mind. Anyway, number one. Number two. 
there is the possibility of a break between Genesis 1 and 1, uh, 1, 1 and 1, 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, etc. So there's this long delay, and that's possible. I don't think it's exegetically impossible. Uh, once the days of creation start ticking off, you start to have problems with the genealogies, and that's where you end up with, you know, 4004 BC, as James Usher gave us and all that. You have exegetical issues at that point. At any rate, the possibility of a long day in Genesis 1. So day means age, the day-age theory. That has significant problems uh, linguistically everywhere in the Bible except Genesis 2, unfortunately. In Genesis 2, it says, in the day when God made the heavens and the earth. So at that point, day seems to be an era of time. Um, but still, in the Ten Commandments, it says, do all your work in six days and rest on the seventh. Why? Because God made heaven and earth in six indeterminately long periods of time and rested in the seventh indeterminately long period of time doesn't mean anything for us. There's no rhythm to us. We understand there's evening and there's morning the first day because that's how we live. And so good, could God have created this entire universe in six days? There's nothing he cannot do. So I'm going to just take, based on the Ten Commandments interpretation, you know, in six days he made the, seven, uh, the, the earth and rest on the seventh, that's what we know as a day. And everywhere else in the Bible, even in the day of the Lord, it's still a day. It still happened a certain day when Jesus returned. So um, day age is a little hard um, and, the, and generally there's nothing in the Bible that requires it you don't read it and say boy we really need billions of years no you don't you just read it and it's like oh suddenly now we suddenly need millions and billions of years why because evolution requires it so that's the tail wagging the dog and exegetically and I just don't see the benefits of it um, but some brothers and sisters do hold to this fourth there's a possibility that the flood affected geological data it was a massive kind of earth rending flood and it uh, changed things. There, the use of the word kinds in Genesis may be quite broad. So, you know, just like all human beings on planet Earth, we believe openly came from one couple, twice actually, from Adam and Eve and from Noah and his wife. Uh, and so all the genetic diversity of the human race, we think all came from the complexity of the genetic code in Adam. So we don't have a problem with that, and we would do the same thing for other species, etc. Kinds. And then there's a possibility of death of the animals before the fall. I'm not sure why you mentioned that, but we could talk about it. And then where the Hebrew word bara, create, is not used, there's possibly a sequence from previously created things. All right, so those are seven you want to look at. Now let me talk to you about science. Um, you know, science, all right. Um, science is not a monolithic thing. I hope you know that. It's just people doing what they do. So we need to be humble, just first and foremost. You know, I'm going to forget... Um, when Nathaniel was, had finished his first unit in math, and I came home from work, and he was so excited, he said, Dad, I've learned everything there is to know about math. <laughs> I'm like, friend? <laughs> my last math class was my second semester sophomore year at MIT on vector calculus. Um, and I'm looking down at my little boy and saying, if you only knew. <laughs> you know, math is like an infinite train ride, and everyone gets off at some point. All right, so... Uh, no, you don't know everything. So the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Like, you, there are probably whole studies that people get PhDs in, whole realms that you didn't know that people, that that was even a thing. So you have to be somewhat educated to know how ignorant you are. And, and so that's, you know, and I, I think, God willing, the next book I'm going to be preaching on is Job, and I'm excited about that. But boy, does God give Job an education at the end of that book. It's like... You don't know anything. <laughs> I created everything. And so just humility. Um, so our knowledge of the world and the universe is imperfect, and our knowledge of Scripture is imperfect. The Bible says things you didn't know it said. Uh, our knowledge of theology is imperfect. We've got to be humble here. 
Uh, now, we as Christians believe in a principle of non-contradiction. So apparent conflicts between evidence coming from the physical universe and scripture cannot finally exist if God is the author, author of both. We're going to try to harmonize. Always try to harmonize as best we can. And the same thing scripture to scripture. Fearless investigation. No Christian should ever be afraid to investigate the evidence from both scripture and science carefully. Nothing will ever be dug out of the earth to destroy the word of God. So don't be afraid they're going to find Jesus' bones. All right? It's not going to happen. <laughs> How they would know it. Someone once said that like the uh, hill of uh, uh, skull, the hill of the skull or something like that, you know, Golgotha, it's because Adam's skull was there. I'm like, how in the world would anyone ever know that? Here's a skull. This is Adam's skull. I'm thinking about all the pilgrims in the Middle Ages that would go see relics and there'd be a bone there. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's in a gold box with a crystal pane and all that, but what is it? Who knows? It's just an old looking bone. Anyway, so much for relics. We're not doing that here. All right, suspicion of science before sus suspicion of scripture. For me, this means I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to give first place to scripture always. Um, scripture is given to lead us to life and godliness. So scientific method, um, science is an ever building, constantly changing and very human thing. All science is built on previous work done by others. Since we are not in the lab with them, like you almost circle that, and since data can be interpreted many different ways, we should be cautious in accepting theories. Do you realize every scientist is a man or woman of faith? They're accepting other people's work. They're accepting their research. They have no choice. You don't have enough hours in the day to become a specialist in any more than probably two or three at most realms of, you know, unless you're Isaac Newton, you're inventing whole sciences that didn't exist before. But there are very few people like that, and even he had to focus and specialize. So to understand other things, you're just gonna be reading other people's synopses of their life work. It's almost like reading scripture. You're kind of interpreting what, what, you, what they've learned and, and boiling it down. They accept one another's findings by faith all the time. So you know when they say, we believe in evidence, and I was like, no, you don't. You, you believe in trusting science and trusting scientific and that, and that journal that is, you know, a referee journal that they wouldn't publish it if it weren't true. Don't be like that. Science is very human, and, and their findings have to be accepted um, by, by faith. Also, um, there are massive shifts uh, from time to time, like moving fr uh, from, the, from the, you know, the 19th century Newtonian physics into the Einsteinian era, the relativistic era, which Newton couldn't explain stuff getting up near the speed of light. And you know Einstein came in and explained a lot of that stuff, so that was a shift. Um, also, the nature of the human heart. Human hearts suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and that's especially true when it comes to evolution stuff. They suppress it. What does that word mean to you, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness? What do you think of when you think of the word suppress? Push down. Push down, hold. So what does that show about their attitude? They're fighting it. They're opposed to it. They, they're, they're fighting hard. Now look at these quotes at the beginning. Look, look at this. Richard Dawkins, arch-Darwinian. Um, I like that phrase. Anyway, biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. You can add the rest of the word, but aren't, or but weren't, you know? So he, that seems like holding the truth down or suppressing the truth down in righteousness. You've got to fight this. And then Francis Crick, same thing. Um, who was an atheist, uh, discovered the DNA, he said, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. They gotta keep working at this. 
I'm like, because the evidence is like, it sure does seem like it had a purpose. Um, but at any rate, the, so that's examples of that. And then there's the uh, Emperor's New Clothes, and that's that story of, you know, remember, these hucksters that come in and deceive the king and weave some beautiful garment that actually doesn't exist. And they clothe the king in it, and the king goes out in it, and the, the rules of the game were that if you are competent for your position, you can see how beautiful the emperor's robes are. And if you can't see how beautiful they are, you're not competent for your position. Oh, wow. Does that, I mean, the, finally the little boy comes in. He's naked. You know, he has nothing to lose. So what does this have to do with science? Well, you don't want to get shouted down by your co-workers that you're incompetent. So you need to sing from their sheet music and accept the things that they accept, and that especially when it comes to evolution. If you don't, you're not going to get funded. That's key. You're not going to get. You're not going to get money. You're going to have difficulties, like Michael Behe did after writing Darwin's Black Box. You're going to have difficulties. Um, and fundamentally, they're going to say, "Look, evolution is essential to teaching science. You cannot teach it without it." Look at the quote in the middle of the page. Teaching biology without evolution is like teaching chemistry without the periodic table or American history without Lincoln. Okay, so this is Stephen Jay Gould, who was, um, you know, evolutionist, paleontologist, uh, Harvard, deceased now. No scientific theory, including evolution, can pose any threat to religion. For these two great tools of human understanding operate in complementary, not contrary fashion, in their totally separate realms. So that's that's you know an atheist. He has no respect for the Bible. He's saying basically what he's saying is religion stay out of our thing, stay in your lane, don't get involved in what we do. But we Christians don't think that way. I said earlier in this handout, we believe all of the truth is from God, and so we're not going to stay in our lane. We're interested in science. We're interested in the Bible. We're more interested in the Bible than we are in science because one of them can take us to heaven. Uh, one, of us can, one of them can, can forgive our sins. Um, but science has its uses. All right, Gould's two basic arguments. Evolution is an indisputable fact of science, not merely a theory, and evolution in Christianity can peacefully coexist. Now, some Christians try to do this, theistic evolution and all that sort of stuff, and you can look at those kinds of things. But with the time I have left, I want to skip ahead all kinds of stuff, um, but go up to page six, and I'm going to talk about what I call three problems for naturalistic evolution. All right, so these are issues that I would have a hard time answering if I were a naturalistic evolutionist. All right, so I had a conversation with a man on the plane. I'll never forget this. This is years ago. And he and his wife were there, and he was sitting in the middle seat. She was in the window seat. I was in the aisle seat. And we got, you know, I started sharing the gospel with this guy, and he was a hostile man. He was in his 70s. He had had some experience, not in America, but in some other country, where he lived next to a Pentecostal church that played music all hours of the night, like 24-7. And the rage was still there. It was palpable, you know? Like, no, I'm paying other people's bills right now. I mean, I, I would not recommend local churches doing that to their neighbors. I mean, this is not a good witness. But anyway, they burned that bridge. But, the, you know, I don't know if there was any bridge anyway to burn. This guy was uh, pretty hostile. And... Um, he brought up evolution. He did, and you know, I he, he when I found out I was a Baptist pastor, it was almost like he didn't want to talk to me. And I don't think he wanted our arms rubbing against each other on the on the armrest. So you know, uh, but then when I told him that I went to MIT and I worked as a mechanical engineer for ten years, he was a little bit interested. It's an, it's an odd combination. So like, tell me, tell me your story. You know, so I gave him a brief. Summary. And, and he brought up evolution. I said, well, I actually don't believe in evolution. I don't 
I don't think there's good evidence. I think it's bad science. It's bad theology. It's bad science. And it's like he was shocked. It's like how you you went to MIT and you think that is that what you? Um, why? I said well three reasons. And I gave him this stuff. And um, you know if I could summarize the three reasons, where did the first living cell come from? Very hard problem to solve. It's almost insolvable. Because one of the basic principles of biology is life comes from life. Life doesn't come from non-life. There's not a single example of life from spontaneous, whatever. It just doesn't. Life always comes from life. So where do you get the first cell? You have nothing on planet Earth alive, now you have a living cell. How'd that happen? And they'll never figure it out. They keep offering. I, I, I saw the Origin of Life Prize. When I wrote this thing years ago, it was 1.5 million. Now there's another group giving $4 million. $4 million to anyone that can come up with a scenario whereby the first living cell came about really hard to do. If you figure out what a cell is and does, what's in a cell, and how it functions, and all that, and you're like, all right, you had nothing, you had no cell, now you have one? Huh, interesting. Anyway, so where did the first living cell come from? We Christians should not fight evolution way at the, at the tail end with the uh, origin of man, you know, and, and species of apes and all that. Go way back to the start, because they have no answers. And they're just, all right, secondly, why, don't, why doesn't the fossil record show a continuous evolution of species? Everything just pops up into the fossil record fully formed, always. There's just not a development. So the fossil record, and Darwin himself said this was the biggest problem for his theory. And he hoped that over the next number of decades that paleontologists would come up with lots of transitional links. And you're not finding just one for man, you're finding them for everything, all these transitional links. And, if, and you know, the longer life has gone on, so their theory goes, the bigger their problem is. Like I've said, we should be tripping over fossils on the way home. They should be everywhere. They shouldn't be having trouble finding these links, these transitional links. So why doesn't the fossil record show a constant evolution? When you have, you know, uh, trilobites, these, these horseshoe crab-looking things, you know, they pop up in the fossil record, lots and lots and lots of them fully formed. I want to see like 90% of a trilobite. Where'd that come from? Or 80 or 70 or 60, like a dimmer switch. A whole journey until you get a trilobite, because they're pretty complicated and you can't make one in your lab at home. <laughs> so um, where do they come from? Fully formed in the fossil record, it's a big problem. And then the third really comes from Darwin's, uh, Dar Darwin's black box, which is Michael Behe's thing on the cell, but I'm gonna extend it over, and Darwin himself said it. Uh, exquisitely complex and formed organs, uh, what they call irreducible complexity, things that need each other in order to function and live. Um, what I would say is, all right, how do you evolve up into a complex functionality like, let's take light? So, by an evolutionist way of thinking, there was a time that nothing on Earth could fly. So the capacity for flight evolved, right? There are four different types of flight species that fly. There's insect flight and mammal flight, like flying squirrels and birds with feathers, and then there's extinct flying um, you know, reptiles, like dinosaurs, like, I don't know, raptors, I don't know what. Um, those are the four different modalities. So the, the fourth one we don't have to talk much about, it's whatever we can find from a fossil record, but let's set that one aside. Um, but let's zero in on birds, all right? Birds um, need wings. Wings are amazingly complex. So let's just zero in on the wings, and the feathers and the wings, all right? What good is 60% of a wing evolved on that journey? What good is it? What good is that wing? 
And I remember talking to this guy, and he said, flight is incredibly helpful in natural selection. It helps them get away from predators, or if they are predators, it helps them like a hawk. In your scenario, they're already flying. In mine, they're not flying yet, and they won't for another 100 million years. But they're working toward it. <laughs> there are genetic mutations helpful for flight down the road. Why retain them? Your rules of the game are random mutations that prove beneficial, but they have to prove beneficial every step of the way or they won't be passed on to their descendants. That's your rules, not mine. So how do you explain why this creature is dragging around this useless vestigial thing that it also passes on to its progeny, only better, a little bit better. We're gonna make the journey in my generation from 60% of a wing to 61%, all right? So that another 100 million years, by gum, we're gonna get there, we're gonna have flight. Makes no sense. Why would it pass on the mutations? It's a relevant question, needs to be answered. And I, if I were them, I can't answer it. What this guy did was get angry. He just got angry at me. His wife is a faithful Roman Catholic, been working on him for years, was rooting for me, and just kept quiet the whole time. Probably praying for me or something like that, I don't know. And he was just steaming. And one of the things I learned from Greg Kukul in his tactics book is like, if either one of you gets angry, you've lost it. But I can't control that. So I had to dial it down. I had to get away from the whole topic. It was not going to be helpful. Because friends, you know you can win the battle and lose the war. You can checkmate them logically and they don't have an answer and they feel trapped and they just want to, they want to rip you apart. They're not, they're not con convinced. So, you know, but we got to heat quickly. He was writing a book on evolution. I was annoying him. <laughs> and you just put you know, an appendix on these three questions and your best answers to them. So that's a summary of the pages that follow here. Um, do you have any questions before we look at details? What are the three problems that I brought up? Where did the first living cell come from? Why don't the fossil records show continuous evolution of all species? And, and exquisitely complex organs, how do you get there uh, when they're not useful all along? How do you evolve up? Or I like saying, what's, good of, what, what's the good of 60% of a wing? It's just gonna get in the way. <laughs> so those are the three problems they have to answer. Please don't think that these brilliant people haven't tried to answer them, and they do. And they can come up with, I mean, people have been working on Behe's Darwin's Black Box, which is the complexity, uh, irreducible complexity of the cell ever since he published it. He has had a difficult life ever since he published it. I mean, that's the Emperor's New Clothes thing. It's hard for him to you know, hold down jobs and all that because of the funding and that whole thing. So at any rate, these, are, these three questions have them in your minds. Now you could say, look, you know, I can't really drive that vehicle. If I bring those up, I'm really not gonna be able to say much beyond it, and I understand that. Keep in mind, one of the purposes of apologetics is to confirm the faith of those that are already Christians. So that you know that just because there's evolution out there doesn't mean that you need to not trust the Bible. Just keep having your quiet time. Keep reading the Bible and, and don't worry about what these people are saying because there are good answers. Um, and so for, for me, that's a function I get to play. But I'm not even, I can't carry other people's shoes in these areas of like microbiology. I'm not a microbiologist. I'm just told by microbiologists that the cell is very complicated. And you look at diagrams of it, and it's like, it makes sense. I don't know how you go from nothing alive, now suddenly you have a cell. 
And boy, that cell needs to have a busy couple of hours because it's not going to last long in that kind of primordial soup. And it better procreate. You know, I mean, it's just bizarre. I don't know how anybody can believe this stuff. But anyway, let's dig in. All right, inverted pyramid of cards. Do you see that? Isn't that a cool picture? I was looking for that and, and you know, whatever. Where do I get this? You know what a house of cards is, right? And you, and you make it with a, you know, kind of a wide base and go up like, it's almost like a pyramid. That's what you generally try to do. Have you guys ever done that? Built a house of cards? Yep. All right. Some do, some don't. I mean, toward the end, how do you feel, brother? When you're when you're building, your, you're at the highest level. You got the last few cards to put on. What do you think? <laughs> you don't breathe. I saw some guy that did a world world record Jenga tower, and some some reporter came and accidentally knocked it down. It was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Laugh. I mean, here's this guy works on this for hours, days, and the thing comes down. But anyway, it's very fragile. It's coming out. But going like from this out to this, out to this, out to this, and this and this, it's an inverted pyramid. It's getting ever more complex. And every step in the way is running contrary to the normal thing that we see in the universe. Things don't go up into greater complexity. They go from complexity down into rot. Um, your kids, the room gets perfectly clean. Wait a week, I don't know, an hour. And it isn't there anymore. All right. So you've got this inverted pyramid of cards. Every step, something, something is adding more cards to make it ever more complex than it used to be. And picture a big fan, like a Hollywood fan, you know, like off, you know, 10 feet away, blowing this way as each card is being placed, because it's running against forces at every step. And that's what they want us to believe. We're going from, you know, the Big Bang, in which there was almost nothing, but just a whole bunch of everything in one very, very, very tiny, small, hot thing. No one knows what it is or where that came from. Out it goes, Big Bang. Then stars are formed, solar system formed, Earth is formed just right for life. By the way, there's a four or five page article at the end of your handout here on how just right for life the Earth is. It's amazing how just positioned the Earth is from the sun, how the temperature is right and all that. I won't get to it today, but it's really good. I don't know who wrote it. All right. So, guys, these are BFL handouts. Please don't accuse me of plagiarism. I absolutely plagiarized other people's work. I just didn't <laughs> footnote everything. So, um, you know, I'm not claiming this is mine, but I'm just saying it's helpful words for you. I'm not writing an article here, in which case I would have to footnote. By the way, uh, for my books, I have to ask permission of everyone I mentioned in my books. Baker Books requires that. I had asked my son permission to tell a sprained ankle story, I had to get his written permission. <laughs> At any rate, all right, going down from there. Uh, Earth formed just right for life. Then non-living chemicals move to amino acids. Then amino acids, they all have to be left-handed to be biologically active, move up to proteins. Whoa, what a step that is. And then from proteins, you're going to go to RNA with its proper sequence. From that to DNA with its proper sequence. Then we're going to... Uh, have single-celled organisms, life according to definition, that's your first time you have life. Then single-celled organisms have to move up to multi-celled organisms. Multi-celled organisms to invertebrate marine life, invertebrates to vertebrate marine life, vertebrates to amphibious animals, an amphibious animals to reptiles, reptiles to mammals, mammals to primates. Is that the last step? Nope, primates to man. But between step six and eight, you've got probably 20 more things to add. I know. If you want to add and just totally confuse us, 
go for it. And again, keep in mind, you know, what do we know about these things? I don't know, this is not my area, but I think this is the general roadmap that's laid out for us. And the general journey from less complex to more complex is clear. Always, always moving in that direction. Uh, first challenge, primitive Earth atmosphere. Uh, all of the models had no oxygen. And why is that? Because oxygen destroys things. So who are those guys that came up with like protein and some cell in the University of Chicago in the 1950s? You remember what I'm talking about? These guys that, that percolated some things and added a spark and made the basic building blocks of life that we were told? There was no oxygen in the thing, all right? None. Of course, living things need oxygen to live, so you have a basic oxygen problem because you don't want it there because it blows things up and burns things, but, but you want it there to live, so that's interesting. So that's not historical. That's what scientists have to do. A, an atmosphere that there's no evidence ever existed, but they need it for early stages of evolution. Then the next challenge is amino acids. You can read that. Um, the difficulty, the concentration of amino acids, the left-handed and right-handed uh, things, uh, because maybe because of the helix, the way it's formed, um, these are all complex things. Usually they're 50-50, you know, but you can't have them 50-50. They have to all be left-handed or it won't be active uh, biologically. Then proteins. Uh, how do they combine chemically? How are they arranged in intelligent sequence? And then they sequence from there. You can see all of the difficulties. All right, so where do we get the first living cell? I'm surprised I don't have this here, but let's talk about that. Yeah. First living cell. Uh, it's not here. I'm sorry, it was in another handout. And then All right, so what's in a living cell? Well, in order to win the uh, Origin of Life prize, you have to come up with where the first living cell came from, and the living cell has to have certain capabilities. It has to have a cell wall, which protects the cell from its surrounding environment. But the cell wall has to be permeable so it can eat. It needs to be able to take things in a permeable cell wall. I'm told that's a big deal, at any rate. Um, so in it comes and then waste goes out. It's got to be able to eat and excrete. It needs to be able to interact favorably with its surrounding environment, at least for a while, for its lifespan. It might want to be able to move around, maybe not. Um, it definitely needs to reproduce. Because if it can't reproduce, what's the point, friends? We wouldn't be talking about it. It wasn't famous. You know, it lived and died and we never knew about it. It has to reproduce. It has to be able to pass on its code to its children. Unbelievably complex to do that. And again, keep in mind, nothing was doing that at all. By our, you know, that's first living cell. There were no living cells before. Now you have one, and it can pass on the recipe onto its progeny, etc. Now, what do they say? Well, what they say is that, that life evolved somewhere else and came here on an asteroid. I like that one. Um, frequently, they just do what we do uh, in some cases. They say, we don't know, but clearly it happened. But just know how unscientific that answer is. There's no evidence, there's no way to answer, but they're just sort of just taking on faith. We don't have any way of, and Stephen Jay Gould said that. He said, I have no way to explain where the first living cell came from. I have no answer for it. But it clearly happened. I'm like, well, you sound like a believer. Yeah, that would be that would be cool. The simplest thing is God just made it. So living cells, um, and just look it up. If you have time this afternoon, look up Origin of Life Prize. If you want to win a cool four million for your family and all that, um, <laughs> you know, be sure to give a tithe to the church. Um, actually, I'd rather you don't do the whole thing because it would not be helpful. I just don't think you can do it. That's why the money just keeps going not claimed. 
because it's just very, very difficult to come up with just a logically consistent scenario whereby this stuff happens. Very, very difficult to do. All right, what about the fossil record? All right, page eight. Charles, Charles Darwin's assessment of his own theory. All right. Charles Lyell, who was a geologist, he's, uh, he never accepted Darwinism because the fossil record didn't show it. Darwin said this, why if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? Why is not nature in all confusion instead of the species being as we see them well-defined? Do you see that phrase, innumerable transitional forms? He's honest. That's what we need to find, not just one missing link. Please don't buy into the missing link thing. We're talking about innumerable transitional forms. I mean, we're talking about a dimmer switch, aren't we? That's just gone continually to brighter and brighter and more complex. So every step of the way has to be, now we don't need a fossil record for every step of the way, but just some connect the dots things. You don't see that. And uh, you know, it's, it's a, a problem. Um, I don't know where it, it, it it says this, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember. This is all kinds of complexity here about the fossil record. But Stephen Jay Gould actually posited a theory called punctuated equilibrium. And what this is is that basically evolution, that the fossils, there's just not that many of them. They're hard, it's hard to get fossils, but you, you have to have a, like a kind of a, a flood, let's say, or, a, or a, a creature getting caught in the mud somewhere. It doesn't, most things don't leave fossils. I understand that, That's, you know, but still, there's been a lot of time, so there still should be a lot of fossils. But what Gould said is, it's just not an accurate record of what happened. It's like strobe photo kind of thing. The evolution happened between the photos. So basically, you get the idea of not this as evolution, but this as evolution. And the, and the fossils take photos of these stable things. The evolution happens here. And there's just no time for fossils in there. That's called punctuated equilibrium. Do you know what's going on when someone like Stephen Jay Gould posits a theory like that? He's punting on the fossil record. He's given up on it. He's saying it's not going to help us. The fossil record doesn't show evolution. Now, I think that's significant. Now, understand, that theory is very controversial because they know it's punting on the fossil record. They don't want to give up on it. So one humorist once said, you know, based on Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's for Christians. For evolutionists, it, it's based on the fossil record. It's the assurance of transitional forms hoped for and, and of fossils not yet seen. <laughs> and they're constantly waiting for some find somewhere that will help the case. But just know this in history. Just look up, if you want, Stephen Jay Gould, punctuated equilibrium. You see a guy who is a paleontologist at Harvard punting on the fossil record. What does that tell you? Fossil record doesn't show evolution. It's not helping their case. So they gave up on it. Okay? And then the final um, is of those uh, transitional uh, forms, irreducible complexity. Um, that's, you know, basically the idea of every, the mutations have to be useful every step of the way. I want to show you my personal, like, uh, contribution to this whole thing on irreducible. It's on page 12. I'm so proud of this. Okay. This has to do with, um, I play with words all the time because that's more my gift. Um, so word evolution based on the word shonies. All right. You see it? 
Uh, this is the longest word. It's got seven letters where you can evolve up into a word and every step of the way is a recognizable word. It's really hard to do. If you can, if you can come up with like an eight-letter one, um, you'll get the word evolution prize. But all I'm trying to do is to show you these are the rules of the game on evolution. Every step of the way on the mutations have to be beneficial to help with natural selection. Now, one thing that's interesting is evolutions these days aren't necessarily holding on to natural selection. They're saying evolution's a fact. Natural selection's a theory on how, that, how evolution happens. So we don't know that it's survival of the fittest. We don't know. That's just what Darwin thought. All we know is things clearly evolve. But natural selection is the way they come up with it. But this is what we're operating with. And their basic mechanism is how evolution happened is random mutations, we don't know why they happen, helpful mutations, help the species in that generation to survive and pass its pool on, its genetic pool on the numbers. And in that way, it's survival of the fittest. All right, so remember, we're almost out of time. Remember at the beginning, I was saying apologetics has both an offensive and defensive aspect. We have to defend our faith. We have to go offensive and show problems on the other side. These have been more offensive. We're going out into atheistic, naturalistic evolution and showing significant problems that need to be addressed. None of this will bring somebody to faith in Christ. If you have X number of minutes with an atheistic scientific person and you can spend some percent of that on the life of Jesus, his miracles, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and how that will bring us to faith in Christ, spend your time there. If they have a lot of extra time and nothing to do and neither do you, and you want to talk about this stuff with them, then it might be helpful. The best you're going to be able to do in this rationalistic world is kind of affect a logical checkmate for them, but it's not going to save their souls. You know, they'll say, yeah, I don't see really any answer to that, and it seems to me that there are bigger questions with evolution than I thought there were. That's not going to save them. So spend your time on Christ and on the gospel. Yeah, I won't go into details, but there's someone that, you know, that has been close to me um, who spent their whole life in this stuff and was not a believer. And it doesn't get you anything. Darwinism, naturalistic evolution, gets you nothing. It gets you nothing at death. It gets you hopelessness. I don't know why anyone would want this. It's just so empty. You know, an empty, godless universe that, for which there is no purpose, there's no destination, there's nothing. I find that incredibly sad and scary, and I thank God it's not true. You know, I'm grateful that there is a reason why God made everything. The reason is his own glory, that that is satisfying to us, and we're going to spend eternity swimming in that and being deeply satisfied and happy with it. He's happy with his own glory. We're going to spend eternity happy too. As he said, enter into the joy of your master. We're going to do that when we die. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had to study. I thank you that you, through the scripture, give us so much hope. I thank you that you give us good reasons for why uh, there is a universe to begin with and what our purpose is in it and what the morality is, the laws by which we are to live and where we're heading. We thank you for all of these things. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters and the time we spent together. And I pray that as we go now into worship, be with us, O oh Lord. Help us to worship you and to glorify you by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.